Hello everybody, this is our sixth sermon looking at Bible characters in the Old Testament. We're looking this week at Elijah and the passage we're looking at is 1 Kings 19 verses 1 to 18. This sermon is entitled God Provides Elijah with Reassurance. The scene had been set for a showdown on top of the mountain where all could see the battle lines had been drawn. On one side you had the prophets of Baal, 450 of them armed with swords and spears, and with them was the corrupt king of Israel, Ahab, who'd done more evil than any other king before him. It was a blood-curdling mix of power and evil and violence. On the other side you had just one man, weak and vulnerable and wanted by that king for treason. Ahab wanted Elijah dead. In the middle of the two had stood the people of Israel. Elijah made the opening move. He turned on the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Come on, Israel. Whose side are you on? This was direct confrontation, unnerving, in their face, no holds barred. But the people remained silent. Not a word. You could hear a pin drop. Elijah made his second move. He threw down the gauntlet. Two bulls cut into pieces and made ready for sacrifice. But here was the crux. No matches allowed. This was to be the ultimate battle. This was two gods going head to head. This was a clash for the kingdom of heaven and earth. The prophets of Baal went first. As the sun rose, they began to call on their god. Oh Baal, oh Baal, oh Baal, answer us. But there was nothing. Silence. So they upped the ante and began to dance. Round and round their altar they went, trying to rouse their god into action. Oh Baal, oh Baal, answer us. But again, nothing. Silence. The meat stayed raw. There was no flame grill. By noon, the dancing and the calling had been going on for hours and Elijah got bored. So to remove the tedium, he began to taunt them. Come on, shout louder. Surely Baal is God. Come on, where is he? Is he asleep? Is he busy? Is he on holiday? Where is he? In the face of this mockery, it's no surprise that the prophets became frantic. They shouted louder and louder and they took their knives and their spears and they slashed their bodies. Blood was flowing everywhere. They were desperately trying to force their God to answer. The dancing became frenzied and hysterical. On and on they went. Oh, Baal, oh, Baal, oh, Baal. But nothing. Silence. Finally, enough was enough. Now it was Elijah's turn and Baal's humiliation was set to continue. Before he prayed, Elijah got 12 huge jars of water and tipped them over the meat. So much it cascaded off the meat, off the wood and filled a trench full. Then he stepped up to pray. The prayer itself seemingly designed to mock the prophets. It was so simple. There was no shouting or yelling, no frantic dances, no self-mutilation. Elijah simply stepped forward, appealed to God to remember his covenant and calmly asked, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. And of course, God heard and God cared. God was faithful and fire fell. This was then a scene of total victory. In that moment, the people fell prostrate and declared that the Lord is God. The Lord is God. The non-existent Baal had been vanquished and his prophets shown to be liars and cheats. In 1 Kings 18, God proved himself sovereign over all. The only question left was whether King Ahab would heed that truth. And as our reading began, the answer was revealed. And it was, of course not. 
Instead of turning back to God, Ahab turned to someone seemingly far more threatening, his wife. Now Jezebel was a fearsome specimen of a woman and she held a stranglehold over her husband. Ahab was Israel's most evil king, but he was also the king with the biggest thumbprint on his forehead. It was Jezebel who had enticed him to worship Baal. It was Jezebel who set about murdering all the Lord's prophets. Jezebel ran the roost. And when she heard that her prophets had been defeated on Mount Carmel, she was furious. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah and it was blunt. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Jezebel was powerful. Jezebel was evil and Jezebel was adamant she would have Elijah dead and dead within 24 hours. Now what happens next can only be described as a terrible collapse. Never in the whole of scripture do we see the fragility of human beings as clearly as we do here. As Jezebel breathes out her murderous threats, Elijah's terrified. In fact, he's so afraid he flees for his life. But worse is yet to come. As Elijah's terror mixes with exhaustion, he suddenly becomes depressed. In his own eyes, he was a total failure. Despite the carnal miracle, Jezebel was still spouting her evil. Israel was still in her grips. Nothing had changed. All his efforts had seemingly been for nothing. And suddenly Elijah is suicidal. He sits down under the tree and prays to die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. How quickly the taunting had gone. Elijah's confidence is shattered. The light of the blazing Mount Carmel fire has been snuffed out. Elijah has plummeted into darkness. And just in case we were in any doubt as to how bad things have got, we need to see what happens next. It starts off with a picture of beauty. God, in all his compassion, sends his angel to help. The angel arouses Elijah with the wonderful smell of freshly baked bread and gently coaxes him to eat. He then lovingly gives him a drink and lets him sleep. But God's mercy was not finished yet. The angel of the Lord then comes back and lovingly feeds Elijah again. This time in a way so miraculous, Elijah does not need to eat again for 40 days or 40 nights. But here's the point. Elijah is still in despair. Even after these two incredible angelic appearances, Elijah is still determined to give up. You see, Elijah had been called to be God's representative. It was through him that God wanted to call his people back. But in order for Elijah to fulfil this calling, Elijah needed to be among the people. Elijah needed to be in Israel. But suddenly we find Elijah heading in the complete opposite direction. How does Elijah use those miraculous 40 days worth of food? He uses it to travel as far from Israel as he can. He ups and he walks out of the promised land and heads for Horeb, or as we better know it, Sinai. Elijah is so depressed that even after God's miraculous appearance, he has totally given up on his calling. How do we know this? Because as soon as Elijah arrives at his destination, God has a question for him. What are you doing here, Elijah? It was a fair question. In the past, God had always told Elijah specifically where to go, but God had never asked him to go to Sinai. The truth of the matter was that Elijah had decided to withdraw himself from the battle. Elijah was in completely the wrong place and he knew it. 
So in response to God's very simple question, he refuses to give a straight answer. Instead, he unleashes a tirade of bitterness. I've been zealous for the Lord, but the Israelites have rejected you, he railed. They've broken your covenant, smashed the altar, killed the prophets. Don't you care, Lord? I'm the only one left. In truth, it's painfully clear why Elijah has gone to Sinai. He's gone to the place where God made his covenant with Israel because he thought that there would be the best place to complain about them breaking it. Unlike Moses, Elijah hasn't gone to Sinai to pray. Elijah's gone to seek revenge. Elijah is bitter and Elijah is angry and Elijah wants Israel judged for their faithlessness. What is more, Elijah's bitterness has made him lose all perspective. You know that line about him being the only prophet left? Elijah knows that's not true. Only just back in chapter 18, Elijah met Obadiah, a man described in verse 3 as a devout believer in the Lord. A man who had saved a hundred other loyal prophets from Jezebel's clutches. So we can see by the time Elijah reaches Sinai, he is an incredibly broken man. He's terrified, exhausted and feels like a total failure. In fact, things are so bad he's become consumed by bitterness and depression. We must be in no doubt. From the heights of Mount Carmel, Elijah's come crashing to the valley floor. But it's at this point, as we reach this moment of absolute darkness, that we can see why I chose this part of the story for our current sermon series. For it's at this point that, amazingly, God appears in person. As Elijah sinks to the pits of despair, God turns up to pick his servant back up. He steps in to provide Elijah with what he needs. Reassurance. But this reassurance comes in a unique way. First, a mighty wind tears through the mountain, literally blasting rocks apart. Then comes a huge earthquake that shakes the whole mountain. Then comes fire, a blazing inferno, normally the ultimate sign of God's presence. But no, the law was not in any of these. The Lord was not present in any of these furious forces of nature. Instead, the Lord comes after, in the echo of the storm. After all the violent commotion, God speaks in a gentle whisper. The Hebrew is literally, God came in the sound of sheer silence. What on earth does all this mean? What is God saying? Well, God is trying to teach Elijah a very important lesson. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over silence and he's sovereign over all people. And it's this truth that will eventually reassure Elijah. Elijah's despair began because after God's incredible fire miracle on Mount Carmel, all had then seemed to go quiet. When Jezebel had threatened, Elijah thought God had upped and left him behind. But nothing could be further from the truth. God had never left Elijah. It was no coincidence that God sent his angel at the exact moment Elijah tried to commit suicide. God had been there watching all along. Elijah had a lesson to learn and he needed to learn it fast. Yes, God works in the bold and the dramatic, but sometimes God works in ways his servants can't detect. God is sovereign even when he appears to be silent. God was sovereign in the fire on top of Mount Carmel and God was still sovereign in the despair of the valley below. But God also wanted to tell Elijah something else. He wanted to tell him that he alone was sovereign over his people. 
When Elijah had gone to Sinai, there was only one thing he wanted. He wanted God to come in power and judge the nation. He wanted God to come in wind, earthquake and fire and bring Israel to its knees. He wanted vindication. But God has a stiff message for Elijah. That was not up to him. God is sovereign, not Elijah. And he and he alone would decide what to do with his people. And as it happened, God was not going to wipe Israel out. He had other plans. And Elijah needed to sit up and take notice because he was going to be part of them. But here's the thing. Elijah was so broken and so full of self-pity, he was still unable to grasp what God was saying. We know this because when in verse 13, God gives him the opportunity to repent by asking him for a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah gives the exact same answer as he had before. Rather than confessing and saying, I know I'm in the wrong place. I'm sorry I doubted you. I'll go back to where you want me. Elijah launches into another tirade, trying to justify himself. Now, by this point, you might expect God to start getting angry. It seems as though Elijah is refusing to listen. But no, mercifully, God understands. He understands the fear that Elijah felt. He understands the pain and the suffering his servant has gone through. So rather than rebuking him, he decides to give another demonstration that he is in control. In the final instructions given to Elijah, God demonstrates that he is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over all the kings of distant nations and can use them for his purposes. Elijah, go and anoint Hazel, king of Aram. He is sovereign over all people, even those who are seemingly insignificant. Elijah, go and anoint Jehu as king. He is sovereign over all those Elijah does not even know yet. Elijah, go and anoint Elisha to succeed you. And then finally, just in case Elijah was still in any doubt, he hammers the message once and for all. Even when Elijah thought all was lost, God demonstrates that he has still been at work. Elijah had thought he was the only believer left. Well, he could not have been further from the truth. God, in his sovereign wisdom, had reserved not just one, not just a hundred, but seven thousand faithful followers. And it's when Elijah is confronted with this that he finally grasps it. The salvation of the nation didn't depend on him, it depended upon God. He was weak, God was strong. He was short-sighted, but God was watching over everything. He made mistakes, God did not. And Elijah at last learns the lesson. God is sovereign, and what we need to do is trust him. And to his credit, Elijah does this immediately, going to find Elisha, as he was told to. I think this is a real heartwarming passage of scripture. It's so reassuring when we get to see that even the most heroic of biblical figures had many failings and flaws. Elijah was weak. Despite all the miracles he'd seen firsthand, as soon as he felt threatened, he began to doubt. And very quickly that doubt escalated into fear and bitterness, anger and self-pity. The reality is Elijah became depressed. Depression is a real issue in our community at the moment, and it's an illness that affects Christians just as much as it does non-Christians. The charity Mind estimate that one in four of us experience depression in any given year, and that was before the pandemic struck and left us reeling. Some have suggested it has doubled since then. In the cauldron of life, it's so easy to get worn down. In crisis moments, it's so easy for fear and anxiety to begin to strangle our life. 
Elijah's basic complaint in this story was, God, this isn't fair. How often have we echoed those words during the last 18 months? But the message of this passage is the grounds of hope for us all. God is totally sovereign. Trust in him. In this passage, God was found to be sovereign over false gods and false prophets, over distant nations and their kings, over the nobodies and the unheard ofs. God was found to have a plan, and even in the silence, he was working on it. Perhaps most importantly of all, God was found to always be with his people. As sovereign, he sees all that happens to them. Yes, in this passage, Elijah was forced to recognise his weakness, but God did not leave him there. Instead, he worked to reassure Elijah. And he did this in the most beautiful and practical of ways. He fed him, rested him, changed his perspective and surrounded him with good people. And by doing so, God picked Elijah up and equipped him to go again. We can learn a lot about how to support people with depression from the steps God takes here. God communicates his sovereignty with great gentleness. But let me finish by saying this. If you're listening to this and you feel weak or insignificant, if you stumble into church with broken hearts, if you're wrestling with depression, which to be frank with you, I know I am, we're in the right place. Let's take heart from God's reassurance of Elijah and allow it to encourage us to place ourselves once more into God's hands. For when we're open to God about our struggles in prayer, we'll begin to see that he can still accomplish much more than we could ever hope or imagine. The Lord is sovereign and the Lord is gentle. Let us be reassured by these great truths.